Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. A little over four years ago, the date precisely was June 6th, 2019, I remember because it was the anniversary of D-Day and I was in my car listening to news reports about the celebrations earlier that day in Normandy, France to commemorate the storming of Omaha Beach for liberating France um, in the Second World War. And I was thinking about the time many years earlier that I had been in Normandy, France. I, I wanted to get up to Omaha Beach, was not able on that particular trip to go see that site, uh, but I always wanted to get back there when crash, my world exploded. Suddenly there was sound, suddenly my airbag exploded, the windshield fractured, everything around me exploded all in a moment. I'd been thinking about one thing and suddenly I was brought back to earth. I remember after that just yelling very loudly in my car, not out of anger, not out of pain, thankfully I wasn't hurt, not out of fear, but just an overwhelmed question in my mind, what just happened? All of it happened so quickly I had to start piecing together what had happened. I realized, well, I must have been in some kind of a car accident. In fact, as I thought about it, I had heard a car horn just before all of this happened. I had to get out to find out that, in fact, I had been in a very bad car accident where uh, someone had blindsided me. It was my fault. I had not been paying attention. I had been reminiscing about time in France. Uh, When I was turning left out of a parking lot, I looked left, no one there, looked right, was turning left while I was still looking right. You're supposed to look left again. There was, in fact, a car that had been in my blind spot that I became acquainted with and with the owner of that car over the next hour as we picked up the pieces. Thankfully, everyone was safe. But it's that question, what just happened, that I think the disciples must be asking in this passage. As suddenly, they'd been with Jesus, they'd experienced Jesus, they'd walked with Jesus, they'd talked with Jesus, and something beyond any of their imagination happens in front of them, and they had to be asking, what just happened? And I think we read, think about this when we read this passage too. What's happening here? What, what's the point of this story? It's such an important moment, it has to be. But what does it mean? Why is it so brief? How does this fit into the 
wider story of Jesus' royal rescue mission in this world. And what particularly should we learn from this and do with this passage as we study the story of the transfiguration, which is here and then is finished, and then goes on as though it had never happened? What is happening here? Well, our big idea as we try to put together the pieces, try to, just as I had to do, to understand what had happened, to understand how all of that car accident had transpired, we have to ask what's happening here. And our big idea this morning is this. Listen to Jesus as we await His appearing. Listen to Jesus as we await His appearing. Three parts to our sermon this morning as we try to put together the pieces of what's happening here. First, we see Christ's exaltation. Christ's exaltation. Second, Peter's error. Peter's error. And third, our exhortation. Our exhortation. So first, we see Christ's exaltation in verses 1 and 2. Now, I frequently point to the transitional phrases in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is telling the story of Jesus... Not as just he's just free writing and just trying to get all the ideas and stories that he remembers out of his head onto the paper. He's telling this very deliberately. There's an order, there's a structure to this. And the way this transitions is very rare in the Gospel of Matthew. Because Matthew tells us exactly how much time has passed. He says, and after six days. Normally it's then or after that or a little while later. But here it's after six days. It's an unusual exactness, which means that what Matthew is probably doing is trying to set the stage to this particular story by reminding us, connecting us back to, well, after six days from what? And we have to look back up the page. And we remember, if we remember the previous passages, that Jesus has just begun to tell his disciples about the things that he must suffer when he goes to Jerusalem. We're seeing here a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And Matthew wants to make absolutely sure that we do not disconnect the glory of Jesus from all that he must suffer. Indeed, as we see in here, that the estate of Christ's exaltation is, is so necessarily connected to his estate of humiliation, much more than this, that his sufferings are his glory. Jesus is glorified in and through his suffering. So then the Gospel of John Jesus declares that when he is lifted up, that is lifted up on the cross, he will draw all men to himself. Christ's humiliation is his glory. This is, I think, one facet. As we're trying to put together the pieces, trying to make sense of what is happening here, this is one part of it. That we have to see that the glory of Jesus is directly connected to his sufferings. We see another facet, another part of the story as we're trying to piece together the clues, what just happened here. When we understand what's happening here is something of a repetition, something of an echo, a parallel to what we find in the Old Testament. You see, we see here that after these six days, what do we read? Jesus took with him a small group of people, a delegation, representatives of the full group of his disciples. Only three of those disciples go up with him, Peter, James, and John, his brother, and Jesus leads them up on a high mountain by themselves. None of the other disciples accompany them, just Jesus and these three disciples. 
Now, this is an important parallel back to the book of Exodus. There are a lot of parallels here to the book of Exodus, particularly underscoring a link here between Jesus and Moses. And if we miss the link, don't worry, Moses himself is going to show up shortly to remind us that we really need to be thinking about Moses when we read this passage. We'll get to that in just a moment. What's the particular connection? Well, the particular connection is Exodus chapter 24, when Moses takes, again, a small delegation, a group of representatives from the entire nation of Israel. He takes his brother Aaron, and Aaron, his brother's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and then along with the priests, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, 70 of the elders representing the entire nation of Israel go part of the way up Mount Sinai. This is right after they've received the Ten Commandments, right as God is beginning to establish His covenant with them at Sinai. And this small delegation goes part of the way up to Adam. Now, we'll return. We're just going to leave that there for just one moment. We're going to return to the question of why Moses is coming up. I just want to observe that this small delegation is supposed to remind us of another small representative delegation earlier. But I want us, before we continue with that question, to think about the fact that there are three of these disciples. Jesus is going to do something very important in front of their sight. These are going to be eyewitnesses to His majesty. In fact, Peter, reflecting on this much later in his life, in 2 Peter chapter 1, says that he was eyewitnesses to the majesty of Jesus on this mountain. And understand, in those days, if you were going to prove any charge, any accusation in the court of law, you needed three witnesses. Two or three witnesses. Every charge must be established by two or three witnesses. Jesus, to make it complete so there's no doubt, brings three witnesses with him to witness what he is about to do on this mountain. So what does Jesus do? For verse 2 we read, he was transfigured before them. Jesus has changed. He's transformed. And we read that in this moment his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. The Apostle Paul, writing in Philippians chapter 2, reminds us that the Son of God existed in the form of God before any of this happened, before Jesus became incarnate, before he took upon himself a human nature, an eternity passed before all time, without any beginning, there was never a time when this was not true, that the Son of God, the person who is Jesus Christ right here, the Son of God eternally preexisted as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and there was never a time when he was not. And during that time, he existed in the fullness of God, as much God as the Father is God. And yet, we read that though he existed in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to, to be seized upon. And so we read that instead, he emptied himself. How? Well, not by stopping being God so that he can turn and become a human being instead. No, no. We read that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He was still truly God. And yet he veiled the glory that he possessed as the Son of God by taking upon himself a human nature. Very God, a very God, and yet as a veil, people looking upon him could not see the glorious and the radiance of the majesty 
of the eternal Son of God until this moment when for the briefest amount of time, Jesus drops the veil. Suddenly, these three disciples see His glory as it truly is. It wasn't that Jesus got rid of His glory and now He grabs it back. It's that He always possessed it, but it was veiled, and now the veil drops and they see the glory of the Son of God. Now this is an important other facet as we think about what just happened here. Again, trying to pick up the pieces, put together the clues, try to understand what's happening here. And one of the parallels that we see here is a parallel that Jesus is shining just as Moses' face shone when he finally eventually came down from the mountain. See, Moses left that delegation halfway up Mount Sinai and continued up into the cloud on top of Mount Sinai where God's glory came down to dwell with his people. Moses alone went up and he talked face to face with God, we are told. So that when Moses came down, his face shone and it terrified the people so much they made him wear a veil so that they couldn't see and couldn't be terrified by the shining of Moses' face. But Moses' face shining was only a reflection of his time spent in the glory of God. Something very different is happening here, which is that Jesus, his glory is shining from his own person. You probably know what it's like to be out, maybe outside of the city, on what should be a pitch black night when the moon is full. When the moon is full, it is remarkable how much light there is, how well you can see when it's the middle of the night. And yet you know that a full moon has nothing on the blazing glory of the sun itself. Why? Because the moon is simply reflecting the light of the sun back to us. We just get a fraction of the glory of the sun reflected off of a full moon. But when you have the sun shining in its full glory, we always have to tell our children, don't look at it. Don't look at it. It's too bright. You'll go blind if you look at it. Because the sun has a radiance and a glory that the moon is simply reflecting. Moses simply reflected as a moon the glory of God. Jesus is God. Jesus' glory radiantly shines forward in this moment. Again, as we're picking up the pieces, putting together the clues, part of what this is doing in this comparison with Moses is showing that Jesus is infinitely high preeminent over Moses. They are not to be compared, as Peter foolishly does in a moment. Jesus is supreme over Moses. What Moses had as a moon reflecting the glory of God, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. But again, the disciples, they're in the thick of it. They're just trying to put together the pieces, not understanding what's happening. What is happening if this is a confusing passage for us, it must have been far more confusing for Peter, James, and John, especially for Peter. So let's go to the second section, Peter's error, in verses 3 through 4. In verse 3, we have the first of three instances of the word behold. Verse 3, and behold. The word behold is not a word that we use like this in our language today. It's kind of an older word, but we still use it in our translations a lot. It kind of means look, like Look at that. 
See over there, look at that. And what we see here is this sudden appearance of Moses and Elijah. And behold, look at this. There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, talking with Jesus. Now, why do Moses and Elijah appear? Again, strange. Well, we've already seen some connections back to the story about Moses. Okay, so maybe there's a connection there. What about Elijah? Well, there are lots of explanations. You can look more at the sermon notes for more work on this. Uh, But probably the best explanation is that Moses and Elijah are representatives of the law and the prophets, respectively. Moses is the one through whom the law came, and certainly he was a prophet in his own right. But Elijah is more regularly considered as purely a prophet. Elijah doesn't give the law, and so he is perhaps a representative of the prophets. And in fact, he is probably one of the greatest of the prophets, maybe not as great as Moses, but one of the greatest of the prophets. Um, Isaiah may have written a more glorious book. Elijah never writes a book, but Isaiah was not taken bodily into heaven as Elijah was without dying. So Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He had not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He had come to fulfill them. Every last dot, every jot, every tittle, every iota, everything has to be fulfilled, and Jesus came to fulfill it all. And so here we see representatives of the law and the prophets showing up to the one who would fulfill all that their ministry had pointed forward to. It's so interesting to read that they are talking with Jesus. If you think about the different passages where individuals show up with Jesus, it's usually to strengthen Him. You think of Jesus after His temptation. Earlier we read about how the angels ministered to him out in the wilderness after he fended off the temptation of Satan. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew doesn't record it, but Luke does, that an angel of the Lord appeared to strengthen him as Jesus prepared to go into his sufferings. Here, what has Jesus begun talking about? He has begun to show his disciples that he must suffer many things. And Moses and Elijah, who had foretold all of this, talk with him to strengthen him for the course that he must take. Well, in verse 4, Peter opens his mouth. Now, I want to say again, I love Peter. I think Peter is just my hero. I wish I made the kinds of mistakes. If, if the Peter's mistakes were my mistakes, that would be a great life because he is bold, whether he is in the right or whether he is in the wrong. I love Peter here he's in the wrong. Here we read, Peter said to Jesus. What's interesting is often in Greek, it's sometimes translated into our English translations, but it's not translated here. I think probably to sort of, uh, it's redundant sounding, but usually it's literally answering he said to him. Answering, Peter said. Well, usually that's in the context of a conversation. No one's talking to Peter. This is Peter answering something where he hasn't been addressed. This conversation is not about you, Peter, but Peter just feels the need to say something. Lord, love him. And here he says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, why three tents? You're ready to write this down. 
I don't know. Um, if you want to look at the sermon notes, there are a number of options, a number of possibilities that people have thought about. Okay, it could mean this. It could be representative of this. Some people think it has to do with the Feast of Booths and eschatological significance. Some people think uh, you're making a dwelling place for them to stay in. Some people think this has something to do with the tabernacle. I don't know. There's more in the sermon notes. Because what seems to be important here is not whatever was going through Peter's mind. In fact, he is clearly in a confused state of mind. Again, Peter's trying... Peter's trying to figure it out. What is happening? He doesn't know what's happening. And that's really the point that we are to see here. Whatever Peter is imagining here, he's wrong. And the mistake he is making, as we have seen, is that Peter is trying to put Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. He's trying to see that they're equal. What a wonderful thing, Jesus. You're on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. And as we are going to see, that falls far short of the glory of Jesus. Peter hasn't grasped that the law and the prophets are what are provisional, and that Jesus Christ came to fulfill them because all of those law and the prophets pointed forward to him. Now, Peter is clearly confused, but how exactly? Remember, this is actually not the first misunderstanding of Peter. Just a moment ago, when Jesus told the disciples that he must suffer many things, Jesus rebuked him. Or Peter said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen from you. And then Jesus rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance from me. Now, while it was Jesus who rebuked Peter for his misunderstanding earlier in chapter 16, verse 23, a voice speaks from heaven this time to rebuke Peter. And so this gets into our exhortation, our exhortation in verses 5 through 8, where God the Father himself rebukes Peter. In verse 5, the beginning of verse 5, we have the second behold. He, Peter, was still speaking. You can hear him just jabbering on when, behold, look at this. Something new is happening. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now here again is one more instance where we are seeing a parallel, a connection back to the book of Exodus. Because if you remember on Mount Sinai, how does God meet with His people? He comes down in a bright cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. And what's so interesting about that cloud is that the cloud was performing a very important function of veiling the fullness of the glory of God from the people of Israel. Now, they were still terrified. They were so terrified, they told Moses, you go up. We don't want to talk to him. You go up. We're terrified. We're going to stay down here, except for the delegation who was willing to go up in Exodus chapter 4. But even they, only, only Moses, they had to stay behind when Moses alone was called to go up into that cloud which veiled the glory of God from the people. Just as the form of a servant that Jesus takes in his humanity veils his glory until this moment when the veil is dropped, well, now we see the glory of God appearing just as it had at Sinai, veiled under this cloud. They can't see the glory of God, but they hear the glory of God. In the second part of verse 5, we have the third and perhaps the most important behold. If you look at verse 5, it's not translated. It doesn't appear if you're using the English Standard Version. You may have it if you have a different translation. But what it says there is, and behold, a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now remember, the word behold means 
Look at that. You can't see a voice. I think that's why it goes untranslated, or perhaps just not to be redundant again. But that's what the text says. Behold, look, a voice. And the reason I think this is so important is because what Peter himself says in 2 Peter chapter 1, when he reflects back on what he saw as an eyewitness of this event. Let me read to you from 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter was there. He was an eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus Christ. Then verse 17, Peter writes this. He says, For. Now this is important. When he says for, he's saying, let me explain to you what I just meant. Let me explain to you what it meant for me to be an eyewitness of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. What does it mean for Peter to be an eyewitness of the majesty? It means that he heard the voice declare something about Jesus. Now, let me tell you why I think that behold is so important. Look at this, a voice. We were eyewitnesses because we heard the voice. Now let's keep reading back in chapter 17, verse 5. After we read about the voice, what does the voice say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, this was the same declaration that God the Father said about Jesus at His baptism. But it's unclear who all heard that voice. We read about it in the Scripture, but we don't actually know who heard this. Here we know who heard it. Peter. James and the brother of James, John, all heard this voice. What the Father is doing in part here is differentiating Jesus from Moses and Elijah. Those two, Moses and Elijah, as important as they are, as godly as they were, these are not my son. This, Jesus, is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do not put them on the same level. He is supreme over them. He is their Lord. But then the voice goes on and says something that the voice did not say at the baptism of Jesus. Listen to Him. Now again, this phrase is doing a lot of other things. Again, we're trying to put together the pieces. What happened here? The first thing that this phrase, listen to Him, does is to identify Jesus as the final prophet whom Moses prophesied would one day come. Moses, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, right before Moses' death, he prophesied this. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you should listen. He's going to be like me, but understand, you need to listen to him. The implication is not to me. I am simply someone who points forward to him. It is to him you shall listen. And here the Father says from heaven, listen to him. This is the prophet whom Moses foretold. This is the main point of connection between this and Moses and Elijah. That Moses and Elijah were both prophets, but both of them were awaiting the final prophet. And yet, 
Here's what's also so interesting about this phrase, listen to him. The irony is that this is in the midst of a glorious vision of Jesus' transfiguration. Wouldn't it have been sufficient for God the Father to say, look at him? After all, they're there to see the glory of Jesus, to be eyewitnesses, right? But the Father doesn't say, look at him. He says, listen to him. Listen to his word. The point of this vision is not for them to have seen something. It is for them to have heard something, namely for the Father to declare something about Jesus, that this is the Father's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased, and that we should therefore listen to him. Do you remember one final connection to the story of Moses? Do you remember what Moses saw when he pled with the Lord? Show me your glory. Do you remember what he saw? Do you remember the recordings of all that Moses saw as God put him in the cleft of the mountain and said, well, certainly you can't see my face. That's not going to work because no man can see my face and live. I will do this. I will pass by you and you will be able to see the trailing parts of my glory. And how did Moses describe what he saw in that vision? We read not one word of what Moses saw. We only read what? What? what God declared about himself. The vision that Moses received was a declaration, and the Lord passed by and declared his glory. And Moses declared this. What does the glory of God look like? It looks like this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. When Moses saw the glory of God, that is what he heard. When Peter is an eyewitness to the glory of Jesus, what does he hear? This is my beloved son. Look at that. Listen to him. Behold, listen to him. Now, what's so interesting here is the disciples, very obviously, just bowled over by this, overwhelmed by this. We read that they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But in verse 7, Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Now, I didn't think about this till this morning when Andrew had it for the assurance of pardon. But John, who was here, when he saw the vision of the glorified Jesus, and he was terrified, Jesus touched him and again said, fear not. That was our assurance of pardon today. That same John, the same thing happened to him in the mountain transfiguration. Jesus touched him and said, have no fear. And then in verse 8, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The point was not for Moses and Elijah to stand on the mountain with Jesus forever together. The point was for Jesus to be the final fulfillment of everything that Moses and Elijah and every other type and shadow and prophet and prophecy to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our application then, our exhortation is this, listen to Jesus as we await his appearing. That's our big idea for today, and it's the exhortation from this passage. What do we do with this? What just happened, and what do we do with this passage? Listen to Jesus as we await his appearing. We're always asking in one way or another, every time we gather on the Lord's Day, is what should we be doing? What should we be doing as we await 
for Jesus to appear in glory again. And the answer that the Father himself instructs us from heaven, which is recorded for us according to the eyewitnesses who were there to hear the voice, is that we are to listen to Jesus. How do we listen to him in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments? In that passage in 2 Peter that I mentioned earlier where Peter's reflecting back on what he saw, namely what he heard, when he says he was an eyewitness of the majesty, an eyewitness of the voice that he heard, he continues in the very next verse, picking up in verse 19 where we left off earlier. He talks about how we now today see the light of Christ. Listen to the visual language. Listen to the language of light as we read through this. What do they see? Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Jesus is bringing the law and the prophets to fulfillment. How is that? Because we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. Listen to him. And here's that light language, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what just happened in this story? So as we've read this word, we have seen the glory of Christ. We've seen the glory of Christ as it shines forth on this mountain, as it reminds us of the lesser glory that Moses and the Israelites saw at Mount Sinai. Jesus is the fulfillment and the greater version of that here now. But notice that Peter says that even after this, it wasn't that this is the pinnacle of his life. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. Not just what Peter saw, what we have today. Do you understand that it is better to be a Christian with a Bible and the Holy Spirit than it would have been to stand with Peter, James, and John on that mountain? Would you rather be here this morning or to stand with Peter, James, and John on this mountain? Peter says, don't get it twisted. You've got it better than we did back then. They saw the glory of Jesus, and they had no idea what they were looking at. Peter was confused. Maybe this means Jesus is equal with Moses and Elijah. We have the prophetic word declaring to us the truth, that Jesus is supreme, because Jesus is the Son of God. Where do we see this glory? the prophetic word more fully confirmed? Well, this comes from the prophecy of Scripture, and no prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation because it, only, it was never produced by the will of man, but only as men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The session met this last Tuesday, and one of the things we talked about is the fact that we we're almost in striking distance of 2024. And one of our elders mentioned that it would be a good time to set goals and to think about this coming year. One of the best goals that we can encourage you to do is to think about how you're relating to the Word of God. I don't know where you are. Maybe you have certain habits established, but not others. Are you in a habit right now of reading the Word of God every day? If you don't, we have prepared and established a Bible reading plan. You can read some of it. You can read all of it. But it's a plan to stay habitually in the Word. We also have a subscription to Table Talk magazine, which has a reading plan. Grab that. It's free. We want you to take it, to use that. 
to supplement your own devotions? Are you singing the Word regularly? You know, we sang Psalm 93 this morning. If you want to have that psalm, it's in the Trinity Psalter hymnal. You can get on an app on your phone that you can actually play a button, and for those who are not musically inclined, it'll just play you the accompaniment. You don't have to have Karin at home. You can just play, and you can listen to it, and you can sing right along with it. Are you praying the Word of God? Uh, if you've ever read the Bible, Bible commentary of Matthew Henry, you know he's, he's a Puritan who wrote this tremendous Bible commentary. But there's a website, MatthewHenry.org, that if you go to it, I've subscribed to this, I get this every day, a daily email that has Scripture prayers. It has every different petition we could offer, an adoration to the Lord in confession of our sin and thanksgiving, in supplication, the Acts model, and every possible petition, Matthew Henry has taken and has woven together Scripture passages that are phrased in the form of prayers. You're not just reading it. They're actually phrased, addressed to the Lord. You can learn to pray Scripture this coming year by subscribing to this and getting it by email every day. I do this every day. Are you memorizing the Word? We're working on some resources to give you Scripture memorization if that's something that you need to work on for the next year. The point is, you need to identify where do you need to grow in 2024. Our exhortation is this, listen to Jesus, and you get that in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. I hope this passage has helped to answer the question that I think people either think or sometimes they say out loud, why are we so obsessed with the Bible here? The reason is this because it's in the Bible that we see Jesus. We see the majesty of the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. We see the beauty of the lamb who was slain. We see Christ risen from the dead, ascended to his throne and reigning from heaven. We see the grandeur from beginning to end of the royal rescue mission plan from before the foundation of the world and accomplished in the fullness of time by the appearing of Jesus Christ until he comes again to bring it all to its completion. That whole plan is veiled in the world. This world covers that plan in the shroud of darkness, and yet it shines forth fully as a lamp shining in a dark place when we read the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. What is veiled in the world is revealed in the Word. We need the Bible. That's why we're obsessed with it. But more so, the more time we spend in the Bible, it keeps us from all the distractions of all the fool's errands there are in this world. The blazing glory of Christ banishes all the tents we might want to build for Jesus. Oh, it's good that we're here, Jesus. We can do this project for you and that project for you and this project for you. And the Father says from heaven, I don't want that. Listen to Jesus, my beloved Son. It's the Word of God that clearly illuminates the dark path of our suffering when we follow in Jesus' footsteps. It's the blazing glory of Jesus shining forth in His Word that shows the evil of sin and the ugliness of a life pursuing anything else, that casts in relief the worthlessness of a life pursuing anything else in this world. Gaze upon Him. Gaze upon Jesus. Look at him by listening to him in the incomparable beauty of his majesty. You will do well to pay attention to him in his word. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us Jesus Christ through your word, that we would be obsessed with your word, that we would not have more interest in your word as if you dropped down a new version of the Bible from heaven, that we would be eagerly consuming this, this word that speaks now and forevermore. We pray that you would give us this Bible, that it would be a treasure in our hearts because Jesus would be treasured by us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.